Electronic Specifier. Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Specifier Insights podcast. The application of AI in engineering is a very complex and interesting one, particularly in the context of a complete workflow. Today, we have our guest in the form of Joss Martin, the Director of Engineering at MathWorks, who will be giving us a detailed account of the role and responsibility of AI in all aspects of manufacturing, as well as further insight into how engineers and manufacturers can ensure their data gathering techniques can set them up for success. Joss, it's such a pleasure to have you here today joining me. Thank you. And how are you? Thanks very much indeed, Anna. I'm very well. It's really, really great to be here. Oh, amazing. Well, I guess before we delve deep into the AI in engineering and that kind of sort of conversation that today's all about, I think it might be good to start with maybe for those who may not know in great detail a little bit more about MathWorks, what you guys do in terms of AI and your role at the company. Sure. So, I mean, obviously, I hope that many of your listeners know that MathWorks are the authors of MATLAB and Simulink. MATLAB, obviously, a very well-known technical computing environment. Many, many scientists and engineers around the world use MATLAB to develop models, to explore scenarios. They use Simulink to design control systems and plant models and deploy to embedded targets and things like that. And you know, obviously, AI, as we're talking about today, is an incredibly important part of the development of models. They're a new form of model that are, is being used in many, many scenarios. And I think we'll get into a lot of that today. My role, uh, I direct, uh, I direct uh, parallel computing and cloud integration. And so particularly the reason I'm talking to you is that uh, my team are very responsible for all of the work on GPUs, getting MATLAB to run on GPUs. And as you may be aware, Using a GPU is kind of important in training some of these uh, AI models. And so I'm, I'm very involved in the performance side of deep learning. Amazing. It all sounds so, so interesting. And AI is like the buzzword at the moment, isn't it? It's even something I can, I can get on board with and I find fascinating. So I guess maybe to, to start things off, maybe from the beginning, how would you define AI in the context of engineering? So, it's, yeah, that's a really good starting point, actually, because... AI has been going on for a very, very long time. My father worked in AI in the 60s, well, at least he said he did. So I tend to kind of think of AI as usually a computer, but it's a, some sort of artificial thing that exhibits intelligence somehow. And, you know, what does that mean? It means that they behave in some way like a human. And so it's a very, very, very broad area. And we all sorts of things fall into that. So a subset of AI that's really quite interesting is machine learning. That's the subset where the models, you don't go and say how it works. The machine somehow learns. And, and machine learning has been around for a long time as well. There are sort of many forms of classical machine learning, classical models that have been going around since you know the 2000s or beforehand. And then, again, a subset of uh, machine learning is what we call deep learning. That's probably what most of your reader listeners will be familiar with, which is where you train these rather uh, complicated deep neural network models to exhibit intelligence. So, I mean, I think a lot of our conversation today is going to really revolve around deep learning and the workflows there, but we'll talk about it, I suspect, in terms of AI. And what we mean is all this set of models. But one thing I do want to kind of really emphasize early on is the idea of using a model to replicate something is a very, very traditional thing. 
What's really novel, however, at the moment is deep learned models and the mechanisms and the techniques to generate these models, they're revolutionary. And so when people say is deep learning today revolutionary, I try to kind of make this emphasis. Yes, the, the, the ways of doing it, absolutely. But the concept of compacting a way of doing something into a model and driving that model into a system that's not revolutionary. We've been doing it for many, many years. And I think a lot of our conversation today will revolve around the difference between using models and then how you actually train them and deploy them, because that's kind of that's what's so new in the world. Amazing. And before we kind of get into the the meaty conversation around that and, and what obviously you guys are doing, you said obviously AI has been around for so long. You, your father even worked in it. That's incredible. Maybe ignorant. Anna over here didn't fully like I wasn't fully aware of that so to me AI as I say is kind of a buzzword at the moment and I know it's been a long around a lot longer than in more recent years when everyone seems to be kind of adopting it into to their work flow but you know you said the traditional models have been around for a long time but it's like that deep learning that's more revolutionary how long has that kind of been around and when when do you think that has really taken off and has really started to kind of like wow people the, so the deep learning side so it's it's kind of interesting i i would probably credit around about 2012 um although many of your listeners might disagree so neural networks have obviously been around for a long time. Um, there were even people doing kind of interesting things with control systems back in the 80s and 90s with sort of rather smallish, not deep neural networks. They didn't have many layers. They didn't have lots of neurons. And they found situations where even those sort of old, what we would call classical neural nets, behave fairly well. For me, the sea change occurred with a convolutional neural net called AlexNet, which was used to identify what was in a set of images. So there was this long running challenge that had started, I think, in the early 2000s, where there was a large set of pictures and someone had to try to work out how to algorithmically tell you what was in each picture. You had a training set, you had a validation set. You ran your model against the validation set. You got a score. And in the early 2000s, when they created this challenge, the scores were pretty rubbish. They weren't very good. And over time, as they started to develop the ideas around convolutional neural networks and the deep networks that they were using and got better and better computation to train them in a reasonable amount of time, it was at a point roughly around this network called AlexNet that was really very good at identifying that I would say was the real beginnings of deep networks. And that's when it really kicked off. Um, it started with image recognition. It quite quickly moved into anything that could be exhibited a bit like an image. So what I, what I mean by that is when they started out, it truly was images of cats and dogs and giraffes and things like that. But actually, you can use exactly the same techniques to look at Fourier transforms of music over time and classify music. They classified x-rays, obviously, they're a type of picture, but then anything else that people could transform into 
an image that had something interesting. They used convolutional neural network uh, te uh, techniques to analyze. And then they started to look at other types of data and they uh, time series data, linguistic data, and so on. And so it really kicked off. And now there's a huge range of stuff that people try to use deep neural networks with. It must be really cool and interesting to see, you know, through the times how things have progressed and how, you know, the technology itself has, how far it's come in, in that short space of time, like you say. So why is considering a complete workflow important when working with AI? So, yes, there are two. Let me give you two reasons. I mean, one is training the model is only one bit of what you have to do you're going to have to start with some data. You've got to work out whether your data is reasonable. You've got to classify your data. You're probably going to have to pre-process your data. And actually, as a domain expert in your area, you probably know something about your data. You might even be running more traditional machine learning algorithms against your data. In fact, it would probably be a very, very good idea if this is the very first time that you've done deep learning against your data is you want to make sure that the deep learn network is any better than a machine learned network, uh, not deep uh, type strategy, because for other reasons, we're going to want explainability and robustness and, uh, and, and other properties of your model that actually deep networks are not so good at providing. So you always want to have a, a validation of your model against something else to be sure that your model is reasonable. You're then also going to want to probably put your model into production. Now, all of that, except the making of the model, you probably wanted to do before. You've probably already got a tool chain that does it, probably. So probably you want to use whatever you use to do it normally, and then you just want to add this little bit in the middle somewhat. And that's kind of a that's kind of a really standard technique in many places. So if you know we take a Self-driving car. We hear about these all the time. Wonderful bits of AI in them. Everyone gets excited about the deep learn networks that are recognizing what's in front of the car and doing all sorts of crazy things to, to look at the road network, the road signs and tell you that you're in a 30 zone and so on. But what they don't tell you is that running alongside all of the deep learn networks, there are many, many machine learn models that are much more traditional. They're kind of going, is this really doing what I want it to do? Is this really sane? Okay, you, you almost certainly today always have a combination of models running on the same input data, validating each other to make sure that you end up with a robust, explainable, reliable system. And that's like a really critical part. Sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, so is it, you know, kind of like essential that you do have these both parts because then you kind of, you know, have the the outcome that you, you can trust it more because obviously trust is is quite a big thing as well isn't it? it so it absolutely is you you need to generate trust somehow one way to generate trust obviously is to have more traditional models where you they are explainable they have standard operating procedures and and so standard operating ranges and things like that and you know what they're going to do i'm not going to say it's the only way right i mean let's depends how much the output matters, right? So imagine I'm just classifying stars. Maybe it doesn't even matter whether I really get the right or wrong answer. Am I going with my neural network that's going to classify stars for whatever I'm going to do for my research, put 
all this validation behind it? Maybe not. If I'm building a self-driving car, I think I probably want a little bit more validation behind it. I'd like to be sure that it's doing the right thing. So I think how much validation and how much kind of strategy to make sure that it is trustworthy depends on the environment. Now, I suspect that many of your listeners are probably generating production-ready systems that they put outside and put in put in place without any kind of external monitoring. So they probably are going to need a significant amount of uh, validation on the fly, as well as as they build their models. Amazing. And what are some of the biggest challenges? Like what happens if sometimes it does go wrong and you can't always explain why you can't work it out and there is no logical reason as to why this, why it is going wrong? I hope you avoid that. <laughs> well, you keep validating, you keep testing. I mean, the, the real advantage of a deep learn model is that you can validate it in software. You can run, you, you record entire runs and scenarios of real world data. You auto generate scenarios using simulation packages. You generate as much validation that covers all of the scenarios you ever think your model should end up in. And you run your model through them and you make sure that it doesn't do something bad. There's another strategy that's uh, called generative adversarial networks, which one of the properties that a deep learn model often has is that what looks like slightly weird input data that doesn't really reflect what it should do still classifies and runs through in a particular way and says, oh, X is happening. So one of the strategies you can use is try to generate adversarial inputs through the original model so that it says, yes, that's a th this bunch of static is a giraffe. You then give the model the bunch of static and say, that's not a giraffe. <laughs> and it goes, right. So it starts to learn that it even shouldn't uh, identify adversarial inputs as whatever it thinks it should be. So you, you loop your model through those kind of strategies. Obviously, as I say, in self-driving cars and sort of autonomous systems, they often run corrective machine learned algorithms that are not as good, but they run in the background. And you, you take other strategies, sometimes like with self-driving cars, put your hands on the wheel, human, you're a better learned network than I am, and things like that. Yeah, there is that. And then there's obviously also that with humans, there's always going to be human error. So are we kind of moving into an age now where we, we trust the AI and the deep learning more than we do trust the humans? Or is it still that in some cases, the humans are better and more knowledgeable and always will be? That's a really difficult question. You're not allowed to ask me that. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> well, so it it depends by what metric, right? So, I mean, let's take image classification. I think for the sets of images that some deep learned models now can recognize, I think they generally are considered to be better than humans. They tend, well, they definitely can do it more quickly. And they actually, on average, tend to have higher classification rates than humans. Okay, but that's like a hugely limited thing. So fine, in one tiny area, the deep learn network is better. We also know from AlphaGo and, and AlphaZero that it's better at us than chess and it's better at us than Go. Is it better than us in general? Clearly not. We're a much more general AI system, you know, I, 
here I am on the screen in front of you in voiceover to your uh, listeners, yet this is just a Turing test. How do you know I'm not a computer? I, as if I behave the same, I am the same. So I think, I think eventually we are going to have to end up at a, are they better than humans in the sense that they make fewer on average mistakes? Probably. I don't see a better metric at the moment, but you know, that then comes into the ethics of even like the validation of these AI systems. And, and I'm definitely not an expert there. <laughs> And they need us. So that's always one up on us. <laughs> exactly. I, I, just to be really clear, I don't think something that simulates a human is is in any way likely to happen in, in our lifetimes or anything like our lifetimes. Thank goodness. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Getting Into It with Grant is a podcast that will help you build your career in information technology. Learn the secrets of the trade and what goes on behind closed doors from me, Grant, an insider from behind those doors. You deserve a high-paying career. What you know and how you use that knowledge can accelerate you to the top. So listen and laugh along as you hear war stories, mistakes, and lessons learned from my own journey. Yes, so what are the kind of best practices that engineers can employ as they focus on complete workflow when integrating AI into applications and projects? Is there any examples that you have? Right, so, I mean, the biggest problem they're gonna face right at the beginning get some data it it was interesting when we talked about AlexNet earlier they had a lot of images pre-populated everyone ran on the same images but what we're finding more and more is that as people adapt ai to their scenario they, they you know for example they've got some new problem they look at how they might transform their problem to something that's roughly like something that's already been solved so they work out how to do it, and then they go looking for data. And they almost always don't have enough. And they almost always don't have high enough quality data. So the biggest initial problem is get or generate good data to even validate that the idea of doing AI works. So actually, there's already kind of this iterative design strategy for scientists and engineers where they go, I have this bright idea. I wonder if I should try doing this. They try doing it on a small amount of data. It seems to work, but then they have to go back and they have to get more and more high quality data. They have to label it somehow. If there's a lot of it, the human does the labeling. So how do you now start to automate the ideas of labeling? Um, obviously, MathWorks provide tools to automate the, the, the analysis and labeling of data. That's an obvious place to help the, the uh, researcher out. Then training the model starts to be pretty complicated. You know, it, it's not just, oh, I just click the button and 10 minutes later it's trained. You know, some of these models need supercomputers of GPUs just to train them because there are millions and millions and millions of parameters in the model. And the, the model training is about optimizing something like millions to billions to even more than billions of parameters to work out what to do. And it's just the strategy by which you optimize those models changes. Sometimes then many of these deep learn models are not just layers, they're becoming more code oriented. Um, and so then there's tweaking the code and then retraining. And you know, so as soon as training takes days, tweaking and cycling and tweaking and cycling is quite complicated. So you've got to work out how to optimize that. 
And at the end, you've then got to work out how you're going to deploy it. Um, and so, you know, you've got to run through that process and probably run through it several times as you evolve your strategies for ending up with a model that you put into production. It sounds like a very <laughs> long process. Do a lot of engineers and, and workers kind of sometimes underestimate how how long this is going to take the process? I think, yes, maybe. I, I think people do kind of sometimes see it a little bit as a silver bullet. Oh, I should just do deep learning. It'll be fine. And and, and actually what's interesting often is that the very first foray in is quite easy. And you kind of get quite promising results. And it sort of follows that 80-20 rule. You can spend 20 of the time, 20% of the time getting 80% of the competence, but then you need to spend the 80% getting the final 20% that you need. So just it's like any other modeling environment. Don't underestimate that. It's I think everything was like this. You know, whenever you used to operate um, in an environment where you had to produce safety critical models, you have to spend a lot of time sweating the details. And what you don't want to be doing is sweating the tool chain. That's why an integrated tool chain, where all phases of the tool chain mesh for what you think you're going to do, makes life a lot easier because then you can focus on the science and the engineering, which is where you need to be focused. Definitely. And so you mentioned tools and obviously some of which uh, MathWorks provide. What tools are available and out there to support engineers through the complete workflow? flow from prototype to production. And do I have to not say MATLAB here? <laughs> of course, MATLAB. Please do. <laughs> well, so obviously, I mean, obviously, I will say MathWorks tools are here to support you throughout the workflow. There may be other tool chains that I don't get terribly involved with. Working for MathWorks, obviously, I focus very much on MATLAB. I, I, I apologize to your users if I think I'm being one-sided here. <laughs> You know, I've, I've worked with MATLAB for the last 25 years or so. And yes, I used it as a, actually, I used it as a data preparation environment when I was an academic. And so in that sense, it's still being used as a data preparation and a data analysis environment. And so therefore, you know, all we need to do in our tool chain is make sure that we can analyze lots of, bit, lots of data, that we can apply the same analyses to these, that we can provide GUI environments to do labeling, that we can provide the ways to do the training. Um, at least that's the bit my team gets involved with. And actually, really, really importantly, that we can provide ways to deploy those models out into the broader environment. Um, sometimes you would be deploying them onto the cloud in sort of a production web service kind of endpoint way. But actually more and more, we're seeing that we will be deploying to embedded hardware, to you know smaller chips running actually in custom environments, in cars, in planes, in IoT devices. And there we, we have a very, very good story. I think we are one of the rare places where we can take our models and put them down into native C code and run them on the far end. And that's like a really, really important part. It's being able to deploy via our coder products and validation products out into the real world and run on end devices. Oh, wow. Well, it leads me very nicely to my final question for you today, Joss. Without asking you to get your crystal ball out and predict the future, um, what is next? What is next for MathWorks? What is next, you know, for AI, in, in your opinion? What trends can we expect to be seeing over the next few years or so? Yeah, I love, I, I mean, I mean, obviously, I really want to have a crystal ball here because then I, you know, pushing MathWorks in the right direction. I think 
I still think this this issue that we touched on much earlier about trust and explainability, we're not there yet. Um, we we don't understand why a model says X given input Y. Um, we know it does, and every time we give it the same input, it gives us the same output, but we don't know why. And what we can't do is work out what safe operating areas of inputs will behave like. We're starting to get tools that help us to understand and explain why models do certain things. Um, and obviously, MathWorks are integrating those into its deep learning um, toolbox and things like that. So I think that by having explainability, we will start to get to a world where we can generate trust in these tools. And by generating trust, people will be more comfortable having them in environments that maybe they would require backup models at the moment. So I think even these kind of strategies I was talking about earlier that we were discussing about validation in real time, they end up with non-optimal solutions in some cases. They're not always great. They are what generates trust and reproducibility. But by being able to analyze deep networks in a way that will allow us to generate trust and reproducibility just from the deep network, then I think they get to be better. They get to be used in more places. The other thing that I think is going to happen is that we will discover new areas that deep learn networks can be applied to. So again, if I look over sort of a historical perspective, Firstly, deep learning networks were very, very good at doing image analysis. They would they dealt with image data. And then people kind of went, well, what's like image data? And they got very good at using like image networks to deal with like image data. Not long afterwards, they worked out how to then start applying them to time series. And suddenly with time series, we were able to analyze signals and waveforms and things like that. Then, sometime later, someone worked out how to take linguistics and, uh, and treat it as a set of numbers, and they could start analyzing linguistics. But each time new data was thrown into these networks, they developed new network architectures, i.e. sets of blocks that weren't the same as the blocks they had before, to deal with that data. So extrapolating that out, I think what will happen is that people will work out how to express things as sets of numbers, and we will then develop networks that can analyze and reproduce and model those numbers. So new domains get brought into the AI fold. And all we see right now is more and more domains coming into the AI realm and going, oh, yeah, my stuff works here by doing this set of things. And I, I think that will grow outwards. Now, which is the next one to come in? I don't know, but I certainly get to predict that more domains come in as they think about how to express their data in a way that makes sense for some network architecture. I think it's so exciting. And, you know, you talking about how far we've come in just this short space of time since you, maybe you've even been at MathWorks 25 years and what the future holds. It's, um, yeah, it must be a very exciting and interesting industry to be in. It, it, it certainly is. And as I say, I think it has been, it has been extraordinary the rate at which they, the, the whole AI area has evolved the way of expressing stuff and then developing architectures. You know, just, I mean, just one exemplar is AlphaGo. They worked out how to express the game of Go in a way that with a particular network architecture just worked. And so I think that sort of co-loop of looking at how to say it and then working out how to express it really works very well. 
Um, and I do think, I, I do wonder, given how fast it has evolved recently, whether at some point it probably has to slow down a bit, mostly because you would probably expect that the low-hanging fruit has already been dealt with, right? The, the easy ones, we've worked it out. But it doesn't show any signs of abating at the moment. And also, more and more people are coming in. So the other kind of growth factor is people trying. There are lots and lots and lots of people trying things. With lots and lots of people trying things, some of them are bound to work. Yeah, definitely. Seems to be a generation coming up that wants to be very involved. So definitely. But the, but the one thing I would say to your readership, though, or your, your, your listenership here, is it's very likely that somewhere in AI, someone is doing something that's quite like what you want to do when you're thinking of an AI project. To get started, go find what that thing is. And firstly, just do what they did so that you can do it and then start adapting it to do the thing that you want to do. So it's always look for similarity, use, reproduce the similar thing, then make your thing operate. And that's like a really tried and tested way. Um, it, it's been done for a very, very long time. There's a technique called transfer learning in the image processing space where you actually only change the last couple of layers of AlexNet usually. And you can train it on all sorts of new sets of images very, very quickly. So this is just an extension of transfer learning, which is find something that works and then try something slightly different. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much for making my first episode so enjoyable. And thank you for all your insight. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. No, it's a real pleasure to talk to you, Anna. Electronic Specifier.